Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about work, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. We'll talk to today's guest, Jessica Gifford of Project Connect, about how to create and maintain friends in adulthood in a little while. But first, we're going to look at the book, How to Be an Imperfectionist by Stephen Guise. This book was recommended to me by a friend in that way that was not at all unkind or passive aggressive, but really just an observation of something he thought I could use. And here's the thing. I have never considered perfectionism to be part of my identity. Never, not once. In fact, I have a very visceral reaction to the idea that I might struggle with perfectionism because I am the daughter of a perfectionist. I know what perfectionism is. Nothing was ever good enough for this woman, ever. And when I was a kid, I could let stuff go. I, I was overscheduled every single day of the week. So I had to practice violin. I had to practice piano. I never had any sense that those had to be done perfectly. And certainly they never got done anywhere near my mother's standards. I would have had to have had like four clones to get to her standards. When I wrote essays, I wrote the essay and handed it in. And in fact, I had a teacher have to work with me very closely my junior and senior year to learn to go back and be okay with a draft. I just, I wrote it, I walked away. And in my teens, I discovered the Tao Te Ching and that has this whole like, everything is a balance, there's yin and there's yang, learn acceptance. And I got very accepting of things. So I'd never thought of myself as a perfectionist. When I became an adult, my kids were allowed to be messy. Their clothes were clothes they picked out. I was not controlling at all. I made sure to get them clothes that if they rolled down a mud-covered hill, we'd be fine with that. Like I never restricted their activities. My house was cluttered all the time. In fact, that's a whole another story of itself because I actually found that to make it very hard to function in, but I tolerated it. We had five people. Sometimes we had six. We had animals. Clutter was going to be what we lived in. But here's why I definitely am a perfectionist. When I was a kid, I didn't like cleaning at all. But what I would do is when I was supposed to clean the refrigerator, I would end up spending three hours with a toothbrush cleaning the little accordion pleat around the refrigerator and getting that absolutely spotless and having no idea that it took me an entire afternoon. I had no sense of time passing. It infuriated my mother, but I was like, well, I'm cleaning. When I made dollhouses, it bothered me existentially <laughs> to the point of instability that you can't make something miniature in textiles really. And certainly a kid can't do it. You try to miniaturize textiles and now those tiny little blankets or rugs or curtains are as if you finger knitted them. Like the weave and the warp of the fabric is so big to something small. So you can make a tiny desk and that would work okay. But if you made tiny curtains, they were stiff. They just didn't shrink properly when you made them tiny. I don't know why that bothered me, but Apparently, that is that is an element of my perfectionism is how much that disturbed me. As an adult, I belonged to a doll crafting group for several years. 
And we used to do challenges. They would try to find something that was beyond your comfort zone and challenge you to do it. And I was challenged by someone in the group once to make a breakable toy. And that is another thing that almost undid me. I just couldn't. It was so hard to do. I kind of did. It was so hard for me to do. Also, as an adult, I was perfectionist in things like not expecting others to do more than I'm willing to do myself, but doing a lot. And also, as an adult, and I think this is just sort of going along with the territory, I built a house. The stakes are high. I cared for children. The stakes are high. So you do kind of, it it lends itself to perfectionism. Also, you tend to be more perfectionist if you don't trust yourself. And I certainly never trusted myself. I'm only learning to do that now. And being female, being a mother, there is this expectation, besides having no sleep, that you have to hold to a very high standard. I mean, the joke is always that, you know, a father can take a kid out in a stroller and the entire world sees him as a great father. And a mother can give her kid a popsicle and, oh my God, the criticism of what a terrible mother she is is just nonstop. And also, I was, as I tried to kind of get to a point, certainly with my family, about like sharing tasks, there's this Chinese fable about this woman who married into a family, a farming family, and she said, every time you come to the house, bring something back from the fields that belongs to the house. Every time you go to the fields, bring something to the fields that belongs there, a tool or whatever you have. And the entire family did it. And then there was this cooperation. And I used to think, oh, that that would be so great. Can we just all have a mindset of that? And we never did. But it was kind of like this thing I was always aiming for and failing to do. Back to the book. This guy wrote this book. It's a second book. His first book was about mini habits, little tiny habits you can put together and just do. And they're so tiny that they're too small to fail. One line of code, two pages of book reading, writing 50 words, making one call. So something that's just so tiny, you'll probably do it. So that was his first book. And that feeds very much into this. I really recognized perfectionism in would you go to the gym if you forgot your workout clothes? And I wouldn't. Would you go for a run if you don't have running sneakers? And I'm kind of like, well, no, because I'll hurt my feet. Well, then the next question is, would you just go for a walk? What he's trying to get to is do something anyway. Do some kind of action anyway. Don't give yourself reasons to not do the thing because that is perfectionism coming in. That's perfectionism saying here is an entire encyclopedia full of excuses why you won't do this now. You've just let yourself completely off the hook. I get that. I think that's kind of nice. He does do a cute little thing of like, I'm trying to make this book perfect. And then he crossed it out. What's funny about that to me is that I actually noticed imperfections in the book. I mean, I'm glad he wrote it. It's a, it's a decent enough book. The layout is unprofessional and it looks very much like a speaker's calling card. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's fine. But it definitely could use a redo on in terms of its layout to make it look less like, you know, the first six or eight pages are kind of an ad for his other book. So he goes in and talks about what happens when 
you are a perfectionist. You struggle to make decisions. You might be intimidated by social situations. Procrastination, that's always been something I've fought against, big issue of mine. Getting depressed easily, and I would actually caution him on this kind of language, and I, this may be part of the thing about sort of self-publishing. I hope an editor would call him on this because I would not use the word depressed. Depression means something specific and has a kind of clinical aspect to it. I would use discouraged, just getting really discouraged. Because one of the things about this book is how many times I said, oh, but not if you have serious issues, not if you have trauma issues, not if you are neurodivergent. So for a very long time, I would read books like this and I would apply them to me because I did not know that I was, in fact, clinically neurodivergent. I only found that out like two months ago. So I would try to apply these things to me. And because they're sort of meant not for people like that, there's an element of shaming. And he certainly doesn't mean to do it, but I would love to see more caveats about how it's not. So I'm telling you, it's just not. Talks about people who brag about being a perfectionist. And I don't know about you, but the people that I've seen that brag about that tend to mean they're perfectionist about other people's work. They tend to really be browbeating other people, expecting perfection from others. I've mostly seen it as essentially a narcissistic statement. Then he talks about insecurity, which comes from that corrosive comparison, something I'm always very interested in learning more about. I don't think imposter syndrome and insecurity are really that different. They're the same side of the same coin. But also little flags to yourself like discontentment. That indicates that you may be approaching things from a perfectionist standpoint, especially if you've suffered it for a long time. And lastly, school and the grading system, which is just this breeding ground for toxic perfectionism. Perfectionism creeps in as a way for your mind to protect yourself, to provide personal safety. It's an excuse generating machine, as we said earlier, but it's because we could fail at something we really want. And it is because we are in that state very vulnerable. I want to do this thing. It calls to me, but if I suck at this, I suck at everything. As we protect ourselves, we end up in avoidance. We end up settling for less because low risk and low reward protect you. If you don't try, you don't know you will fail. Then he got to the point which answered all my questions, which was the two kinds of perfectionism, overdriven or paralyzed. And I was like, ah, okay, this explains why this guy suggested this book, why two, maybe three therapists have told me I was a perfectionist. And I said, no, my house is messy. I am not an overdriven perfectionist, but I certainly can be a paralyzed one where you start a project and have that generative energy, that creative energy, and then it occurs to you that it's going nowhere. It's not the way you want it to be. No one's going to like it. That's paralyzed. That's me. My mother overdriven, me paralyzed. Got it. And it also doesn't end up providing excellence because Not doing things because they won't be good enough isn't the same as excellence. It just removes your motivation. It makes you sad. It's discouraging. And it kind of reminded me that idea that it's sort of a low-grade poison reminded me that if you are in an environment, like if you have a little place in your house that's always 
a stressor, you're going to always live in stress. This is one of the reasons why when you design a building, the codes have specific stair heights and stair depths because the average human on a stairway that's misconstructed, if you go into historical buildings, you'll see this a lot. You trip every time. You have that stress. It's just barely wrong. When you step outside and that last step is too short and you bump on the ground every time. Not having sort of a visual reminder, not putting something in place to warn you of that so that you can exist in that space smoothly means you will always live under this kind of low-grade stress. So then he put in a quote from both James Cameron and Oprah. He was trying to make the point that being someone who expects excellence of themselves and others and being a perfectionist are two different things. I am willing to buy that, but I am not willing to buy that from either James Cameron or Oprah. And I will tell you why. From Oprah, it's because I have seen her on shows. There was one where she got very emotional with the interviewer. It might have been Ellen. And she extended her hand and pointed off stage, snapped her fingers loudly, and then did that kind of like, come here thing to somebody off stage. And she just yelled tissue and I thought okay that is somebody used to being served that's perfectionism that's not asking for excellence so I haven't really seen any indication that she's not like browbeating people rather than accepting vulnerability and her own need for excellence I I just you know maybe she does maybe she doesn't but I haven't seen it just because she says I'm not a perfectionist doesn't mean she is not. James Cameron, absolutely not. I went down the rabbit hole. Harvard Business Review did an article on his leadership style in 2010. And they said, based on a lot of unfortunate events, he is good about a number of things and has learned a lot. He surrounds himself with people who are more emotionally intelligent and they have authority over staff and they have authority over the cast and they even have authority over him like telling him he has to stop working and eat. He does often provide, now anyway, he provides safety by rarely firing people so that if the project is very challenging, they have relative safety, except that he had to learn that because on projects like Titanic, he didn't let people go to the bathroom. So they all whittled in the pool that they were all swimming in because he wouldn't let anyone go. That's not demanding excellence. That's perfectionism. On the plus side, he does cross train himself. And that's that kind of like not making other people do what you refuse to do. So he has learned makeup and editing and sketching and things like that. But I would argue, even with all of that, I would argue that the more self-regulated Cameron becomes, the more he would be able to get excellence from other people without using up all their energy and using up all their excitement and willingness. And he did a podcast just a couple of years ago about how many, how he spent so many years desiring his father's approval and trying to prove himself and how impossible that was. That's trauma. That's, that's perfectionism. And then lastly, Kate Winslet talked a lot about working with him on Titanic and then on Avatar 2 and what a vastly different experience it was because she got injured. A lot of people got injured and she got several serious injuries in Titanic stressing other people out, working to sort of eggshell around Cameron's insecurity. 
But she remarked that now he is very, very responsible and caring about his workers' safety. So it's definitely been a journey for him. I don't know that I would buy it for him saying not a perfectionist. I would rather hear him say, I was one, and here's the journey I went on. Actually, that would be way more informative. So the other thing about perfectionism is when you do buy into your own excuses, I guess that sounds so shaming, but when you do buy into this idea that if it's not done right, there's no point doing it at all, it can lead you into this passive living. And I thought about this with the whole idea of motivation and motivational coaching and how those styles can really double down in shame. And I was going to say, especially for people that are neurodiverse, I don't know that I need to leave that as a caveat. I think for everybody, motivation and just get up and do better and do it, do it, do it, get up, get up. I think one of the reasons this book works is he's saying, do the tiniest little bit you can and start being happy about the bit that you did. And I think that is a far healthier approach to motivation, particularly for people who aren't needing deeper assistance for neurodiversity or trauma reasons or mental illness reasons. There's just so many, there's a chunk of people that are not going to be super helped. But I will say that like the Hippocratic Oath, doing these tiny ones and celebrating them, it won't hurt you either. And they won't hurt you because he really does push against. He does resist this idea that you're just not motivated. He did call out Amy Cuddy. I talked about her last week, I think, or a couple weeks ago. But he wrote this book in 2015, so I can't fault him for not knowing that evidence has piled up against power posing and stuff. We are meat-based because the body includes a brain. The brain is body. And so he talked a little bit about just doing a tiny action may lead to the motivation, may lead to the emotion, the pleasant emotion that you've done something. It does lead to the pleasant emotion that you've done something. And that the other way around is much harder. It's a much harder lift to say, well, wait till you feel like it. Oftentimes, that's kind of a that's kind of how we operate and how how we behave or we're trying to do it for others. And we don't feel like our own request of ourselves is good enough. As he says, and many have also said, but it's worth repeating, not doing something because you have a crippling fear that you're not doing it well, great things do not happen on the first try. I've spoken about Pixar before. Look it up. Pixar has this editing process where they expect everything they do to be terrible at first. But then I also was thinking about the phenomenal and amazing pop star Lizzo. She hit the big time really big like a year or two ago. And when people interviewed her, she laughed and said, I love that everyone says I just came out of nowhere. I've been doing this like full time for 10 years. It just kind of broke through right now. He does ask, what would it be like if you accepted your imperfections? And I was thinking about how there's a great book I've reviewed before called The Art of Possibility by Rosamond and Benjamin Zander. And they talk about, imagine you're in school and you just get an A for this class. Now talk about what is it that you did to get that A? And you will find the sort of path you should go that satisfies you. The grade is immaterial. And that there's a lot of places in our lives where we would 
do better mentally and sort of philosophically if we just gave ourselves an A, if we stopped giving ourselves an F all the time. And I also thought about how I've been involved in a an improv school for the last year or two. They have a Zen-based improv and the teachers often say, just repeat to yourself, now this is right. And that's a very forgiving and generous and relieving phrase. First of all, it helps you be a better improviser. I thought we were on a pirate ship and then, but I said, you know, ahoy matey. And then you came in and it was a spaceship and it's going to be a space pirate ship. Now this is right. And just to accept that allows you to really be creative. When you don't accept it and you just want your own way to go, you shut everybody else off. But you also shut off your own ability to roll with things and be more creative. I found this to be in a really weird way to be an incredibly helpful message. I was in a car accident last year. And when the guy smashed and totaled my car, I sat while like right after the impact, I kind of made sure that I hadn't gotten really seriously injured. And then I thought to myself, now this is right. And it stopped me from kind of spiraling into a panic about, oh, I got to call the insurance. Oh, no, I was going to do this. Oh, no, the car. Oh, no, I know, no. I had instead, I was able to really self-regulate because I was able to accept, accept reality. Now this is right. So one of the really valuable things about this book is this imperfectionist process, which is about two thirds of the way through the book. And he talks about like, let's just do a real concrete example. Here's an imperfect thought or idea. What if I tried starting a blog? And the response to that, the flaws are, blogs barely make any money. I need a job and it'll be a waste of my time. But he moved on. Imperfect decision. Despite my doubts, I'm going to start a blog right now. And the flaws are, I don't know where to begin. I have no experience. I mean, I've been looking at internal family systems recently, and this is the voice of, a, of another part of you trying to protect you. Imperfect action. I can figure out the first step. I will register a domain name. I can figure out the second step, how to install WordPress or whatever and write and publish posts. I will write a few guest posts and build traffic. And I'm so excited. And the flaw, the voice comes in and says, it's time consuming. It's a steep learning curve. I keep changing my site theme and my early posts aren't great. Fine, but still move. Keep moving along the list. Imperfect adaptation. All right, I created the blog, but it's not successful. I only have 400 email subscribers. I've been working hard for two years, which is really under what my peers have done in that time frame. Like they've all done so much better. I don't think the design is right. I'm not sure about the niche. I don't know anything after this amount of time. But instead of quitting, I will try something a little different. I'll try experimenting. Maybe I'll alter the theme again. Try narrowing the focus. Maybe increase my output. Try to figure out if there's a different strategy I could do for guest posting. And the flaw is, at this point, I seem to have failed. It has gone relatively poorly. And step five is imperfect success. And this is this author. Today, he's living his dream. The blog does not directly support him, but it is a platform that he uses to launch products such as books and courses. And those do support him. Better yet, those things help other people live better, which has been incredibly rewarding. 
So care less about the results and care more about the work. Care less about failure and more about success. I think he reads it kind of wrong, but this is another thing he talked about a little bit, which was, this is such an interesting concept. Too much plan B. When you think about having a plan B, are you spending all of your energy and cognition and focus and attention on that plan B of what if everything goes wrong or when everything goes wrong? It's not a terrible thing to have a vaguely sketched out plan B as long as you are spending at least 80% of your attention on plan A. Because if you flip that, then you're pretty much aiming for B. You are settling. You are going for that. And he doesn't really get into that, but that's a really interesting concept I I would love to see more on. Focus on process, not the result, which is frankly advice that Cameron needed for a long time, the director. Stop caring about the grade. Start caring about how to be comfortable taking tests. Uh, That is a great idea. He has a whole thing about rumination. I think he probably shouldn't have included that. But it is interesting, sunk cost fallacy, which is when you keep doing something because you feel like you spent so much time doing that thing, even though it has proven itself to be the wrong direction. And then for all of those kinds of things, he has some real practical things. Start using timers. When the bell rings, I'll make a decision. When the bell rings, I'll stop regretting the decision that I made. When the bell rings, I will stop doing this thing. I'll do it for 10 minutes between now and when that rings. Pomodoro is one of the ways to do this. One that I hadn't heard of is really great. Work for an hour, play for an hour. I don't know that I could switch like that. I use something, I'll shill for it. I get no money, but Focusmate, which is a website where you can go and be paired with somebody somewhere in the world just to work for 50 minutes. You tell them what you're going to work on. They tell you, and they just hang out there on the camera and having somebody be aware of the work you're going to do can really help, especially if you're doing a lot of work at home. So I did find this to be a decent little book. And the fact that it's got real concrete advice, that it's got real concrete things to try, the fact that it's very much based on do teeny tiny and learn to be okay with doing teeny tiny because everything, every seed, everything has to start out teeny tiny. The fact is the media and narrative and the way our brains are wired, we want to just talk about the big thing that happened because we didn't see it when it was little. And I really appreciate that. There is no golden path. And this is very, very big. And we have to stop listening to the huge chorus that says there is 40 under 40. Okay, great. They started off with a terrible idea that you didn't get to see. All you saw was this story of success, and it is a weeded out story of success when you finally see it, because the parts that make sense to the story are the parts that worked, and now we're here. So he does structure the book very nicely with tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them, which is another reason it feels a little bit like a speaker's business card, but it is very helpful. So if you want the details, you can read the middle, but you can also read the front and the back and kind of get a good way to get going and there what I did find is it's great then for reference right so when you are feeling stuck when you're feeling in a funk it's a great book to pull out and try some of the suggestions keeping in mind that if it doesn't work for you if it doesn't apply to you if you have really strong reactions to it you may need more substantive help than this kind of nice little book 
you may need to address neurodiversity. You may need to address clinical depression, any of those kinds of things. So in some ways, it's a real useful service for that. This works great if your need is not really heavy, which means if it's not working, that should be an indication to you that you need to pursue some more help. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about work, community, and creativity. Next up, we'll be talking to Jessica Gifford of projectconnect.co. So what about yourself? What kind of communities are you yourself involved in that help you sort of further your work or or not just just keep you healthy? Well, so I'm in a tennis community, which is just for my my physical and mental health and fun. Although right now it's, you know, typically we play indoors all winter and we're in a league and Ah. things like that. So it's definitely different this year. I am playing once a week indoors with masks on. Oh, wow. But that's, yeah, that's it's not quite what it usually is. But um, but that's one of the communities that I really enjoy. And, you know, in my transition from employment by others to self-employment, yeah. I really worked to kind of start to build a community for myself because it really brought up a lot of kind of like emotional stuff to yeah. go to become an entrepreneur emotional stuff and also just like a huge learning curve like i i know a lot about mental health but i don't know how to create a website and a mailing list and like how to make sales and how to price things and just like all of these things that make a business successful so there's yeah. a huge lack of knowledge and learning curve there but also just early on I felt like a loneliness around just not not knowing a lot of other people who were you know creating businesses for themselves most of my friends are are kind of doing nine to five type work or are in practice which is a way of going into business for yourself and so not a lot of people were sort of like I have this big crazy idea that I want to make a reality and how do I do that and so I really felt like I I need to build um, some community around that and I joined Valley Venture Mentors and you know kind of met some people through that uh, which is a an organization that supports entrepreneurs and, and startups yeah And then I've just kind of reached out to people who I knew a little bit, but not very well. And so we've created just a small group of of women. Um, We're meeting weekly over over Zoom to just kind of share like how things are going, what what are you struggling with, and to kind of pool our knowledge a little bit and provide some emotional support for each other. So that's been that's been helpful to just like spend time with people who are on a a similar trajectory even if it's around really different things but who are like I want to make this I want to make this thing real you know I want to I want to um, grow this idea and create a business for myself 
Yeah, so that's been great. That's very cool. How did you find these people? So let's see. Um, I, you know, two of them I knew through, like one of them I knew actually through um, one of my social work internships a long time ago. And then we re-met at a, there was a, a women's small business meetup group that I went to a couple of times and she popped in and we were like, we should make our own group. <laughs> um, and then we started meeting and another person I knew through college connections that she was working on a program around goals, you know, creating goals and creating an accountability structure through like finding a, a partner. So it was also around connection. Um, and then, you know, they invited some of their friends. I knew another person through college. So it was a little bit like these are not inner circle, but sort of like, yeah people that I knew of and I just was like, I'm just gonna throw it out there and see if they're interested. <laughs> see if it sticks. That's very cool. Yeah. And so they've invited some people. So yeah, it's a group of uh there are five or six of us right now. Oh wow. Yeah. That's very neat. Is there structure to that group? Does somebody take the lead? What happens? Well I was kind of the instigator. Mm. <laughs> Initially and I kind of threw out a structure and we kind of tested it out and then was like, this is a little too structured. <laughs> and so now the structure is really like everybody has a, a check-in to just sort of kind of share ups and downs of, of their, their business and progress or lack of progress and just an opportunity to kind of like ask for what they what they need or what they're struggling with to get group input. So people, mm. so it's sort of like the real lonely structure really is a check-in and then like, does anybody have something they kind of want group input on? Oh, that's very, so it's, it's pretty free, pretty free flowing. Yeah. 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 What a cool thing to do. And it's still in its early stages. So, you know, it's hard to, it, it, it may evolve into more structure or not. We'll see if it's continuing to meet people's needs. That's very cool. That's it's neat to see this kind of stuff generating almost. And it is, you know, it's it's that tension between it's probably a lot easier to do on Zoom. There, it might be more mm -hmm. fulfilling to do face to face, but I'm pretty yeah. sure if people commit to something, the longevity on Zoom is easier than the showing up is. Yeah. 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 And the showing up is very geographically bound. Yeah. I mean, we, we did start meeting in person and so it is all local people, but, but theoretically it could be international people as long as you can get the time zones to yeah. work, you know? Well, and not even that I took an improv class. So I was taking improv all the year before this all happened and enjoyed it enormously. And it got canceled and I, kept the group going for months actually I kept it going until October 
and try, I, I actually kind of preferred to do it on Zoom, but people wanted to meet face to face. So that's fine. But of course, the numbers dropped off, dropped off, dropped off. And ultimately, yeah. I spent two Mondays by myself and said, okay, <laughs> this just stops meeting my need for a group. If it's just going to be me in a park in a lawn chair. Yeah. And that was kind of that. Yeah. But then, you know, about a month later, I, or two months later, I was like, I need to go do something fun again. And I found an improv class in LA that I took for a couple of weeks. And I can't take the improv class in LA, except this way. Right. And they didn't yeah. have these before. And it, it was so, so cool. And even as we introduced ourselves, everyone was saying how much they had come for the teacher. And I thought, oops, are you like, are you like good? <laughs> Because I was just looking for literally anything. <laughs> Turns out he's really, really good. And we had students from Kyoto and Tel Aviv, the Tel Aviv guy. It was 3 a.m. And he said, well, I'm a night owl. So I was like, this is so cool. That, that's commitment. This is but so that's cool. awesome. It's really cool. And I hope that, you know, post-pandemic, if we hopefully we'll get yeah. there, we hold on to some of this because it does just open up so much more possibility. And I think the pandemic kind of helped people break through yeah. some of their technology resistance. Yeah. And they're, they're like, no, this is the way we've always done things. So this is the way we have to do things. It's like, oh, we can do things differently. We can open up people around the world we can we could do this over zoom and so you know i think obviously there's value to in-person yeah. offerings and there's value to virtual offerings also so i i hope that that we want to yeah i'm with you and actually one of the people in the class said she was in la but she's mobility impaired so getting to yeah. these things was difficult for her and now everything i mean just that must you know I don't know. I, yeah. I'm pretty excited about it. And even childcare, yeah. like people who are like, okay, I don't want to leave my kids alone in the house, but I can shut my bedroom door and, and Zoom and kind of just keep an ear yeah. out. You know, so I think it, it does create a lot more opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Well, the third thing I like to ask people about in particular is creativity. Do you have creative pursuits? And this is such a an open question. Like a lot of people, it's a complete Venn diagram with their work. A lot of people talk about the creativity involved in starting a new business, which is totally legit. So where, yeah. where has that been an outlet for you? So my my creativity, I would say, is very much my mental life. Um, the and which is which is again mostly focused on mental health. Yeah. You know, so it's so for me, I, I think people don't necessarily think social work, what a creative profession. <laughs> um, but for me, I think of problem solving as very creative. And I have a lot of fun kind of just thinking about what are ways to, to translate theory into practice? Like, what are ways to address a, a really big problem and and find unique solutions to it so for me that feels like creativity mm. I think also I spend a lot of time uh, like fantasizing about the future I'm very future oriented and so I think there's some creativity in just kind of like my imaginary world 
which is largely focused on, you know, what the future could potentially look like. And that, I think, has been really helpful, you know, both as just sort of letting my mind wander and like fantasize great things. Um, but, but I think it also provides some stamina for going through the challenges and difficulty of starting a business because I have this fantastic vision of what it could turn out to be. And I'm like, I, I want to get there. Yeah. And so I think it helps through, you know, through the day-to-day slog of things. Well, so talk about that. So what do you, what do you see it spooling out? How, how, what are some ways you would love to see this blossom? Well, I would love, you know, I would love to see this in every school. I would love to see Project Connect and in, middle schools, high schools, colleges around the world. Um, I think there's applications for it in workplaces as well. So I've done some groups with employees, you know, to help build employee connection. And so I think it has applications there um, and elderly populations. Oh, right. You know, I, I think, uh, so I would like to see Project Connect just like grow and spread and evolve to become longer you know to become a little bit more like the the moai of like this is your group and you're really developing these longer term ongoing relationships with them and seeing how that evolves and I'm also really interested in community you know how do you create community like whether that is kind of a intentional community that's geographically based or a more geographically spread apart community that's coming together around a particular purpose but you know that's sort of like maybe someday I'll create like a retirement community or intergenerational community or you know other things like that so I'm interested in you know, mentally exploring ideas about how do we build community because I just feel like there's so many aspects of our lives that just aren't working well. Yeah. I'm I'm not a parent, but I am friends to a lot of parents and I just think about like, God, like there used to be so much group support for raising children and now it falls primarily on parents and that's a big job. Yeah. You know, and there's just when people are going through hard times, when they're going through health issues, when they're going through financial struggles, like having that community provides a buffer. So those are, those are kind of things that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I go on my dog walk and I, <laughs> I unplug and I'm just kind of letting my mind wander in different directions. And co- so I think that's kind of how I express creativity. I don't have a lot of, don't have a lot of artistic or artistic skills or other creative <laughs> skills. Those aren't, but, the only, those aren't the only ways to do yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Problem solving is a very creative, yeah. very creative endeavor. Agreed. Um, have you ever heard of Baba Yaga houses? Baba Yaga? I don't think so. So Baba Yaga is a uh, character in Eastern European folktales. She's a witch who lives in a house that's on chicken legs. It's very weird. And a bunch of women got together. 
I don't know, sometime in the last decade or so and found not only this, but you were talking about the elderly population and mm-hmm. they were in danger of homelessness yeah. and yet weren't, couldn't afford, but weren't at a place where they could be in a nursing home. There's like this middle period. So what they did was, and there's several of them, it's kind of a little movement, but they got together and they bought an apartment building and made it into a, a cooperative housing kind of mm-hmm. co-housing arrangement and made it so that the bottom floor is bottom two floors, I think are businesses. And then their rent has just enough extra padding in it to arrange for a staffed nurse's office. And it was like, what? So what? (laughs) (laughs) And yet like so brilliant. So brilliant. And I sometimes feel like, I mean, one of the things I really love about being fortunate enough to live long enough to be now is that there are like, no one's stopping anybody from doing that. We kind of got to a point of sort of relying on a church community Mm -hmm. to to deal with all of our, and then that turned into relying on a school committee or or, uh, our community. And then it also turns into relying on businesses to somehow want to fill all this kind of gap. And it's, those aren't, those aren't, I don't know. They're they're not to be swapped in for one another. I mean, if if we've learned nothing, it's that running a business or not running one well doesn't translate into governance. Like right. those are two very very different pursuits. I'm not saying you can't be good at both, but just because you're good at one doesn't make you any good at another. Especially when you assume that you're good at it. Not transferable skills are a real thing, but you know they're you're not doing the exact same you don't have the same goals in those things. The goal of business is to create a profit. The goal of nonprofits is to serve the mission. The goal of governance is to govern the goal, you know, not to make as much money as you can. Right. (laughs) Yeah. While still not ignoring the fact that being solvent is important. It's just interesting. It's almost like, it's almost like they're not either or. They are gradations of the of similar transferable domains, but one is more important in this particular sense, and the other is more. Important. Yeah. But nobody's stopping us. I, I, it's funny. It's sort of I don't know. We wait for something to step in, and solve the problem yeah. for us, yeah. or assume that it will. I think that's a bit of a. I think that's a bit of a lie of of twenty first century capitalism is that someone will come in and fill that void. They might not do it very well at all. Right. Or they might just do it for the people who can shell out enough cash and then, you know, the the people who are wealthy get taken care of and the rest fall through the cracks. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm from Canada originally, so I have a very strong belief in a social safety net, yeah. you know, instead of like taking care of your people. <laughs> But I, yeah, what you were talking about sort of like government, nonprofit, I, I do think, you know, there should be some innovation and entrepreneurialism that, that sort of is incorporated into yeah. government so that it's not like this bureaucracy of that, that's providing social services, but but I, I strongly believe in a government responsibility for taking care of its citizens. Yeah. Um, but I think there's also just so much room for, for that kind of ground up uh, problem solving and creativity too. Yeah. And I don't think we're, I don't think we feel encouraged enough to just start 
Yeah. Encouraged yeah. and supported. I mean, there's the two things, right? I even remember at one point, my kids went to a school where there was an elite choir, eight people. It was an arts, it was a performing arts school. And there's really um, well-maintained, well-done choir. And if you weren't part of the eight, you're out of luck. They can only yeah. take eight. There were way more performers at that place than eight. What was difficult to understand was why the people that ran the school didn't then say, hey, you other eight with a different name. This should be something you do. If you're bummed you didn't get into that, why don't you create this one? And we will give you the institutional support that you need instead of saying, oh, there's only eight winners here. Right, right. And then the rest, like, forget it. Forget this passion or talent. Feel bad. Feel bad because you're not one of the special eight. And I just, I I felt sort of like there actually was the energy, there was the interest, but then there wasn't the institutional support. And that made me very sad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. It, it feels very American to me, like this sort of like there's the the people, the the kind of the elite, the winners, the like, you know, we're really good at, at um, highlighting the one percent or yeah. the, the people who are successful. But then there's not like the the support and the infrastructure to develop the talents and skills of everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And there's pushback. It's interesting. I, as a worker, at one point, I worked for a place where I made it so that the office always gave whatever it was a performing. Uh, it was a circus school, actually. And it was that if you get a group together and do a show, this office will provide you with the same services it does for any other programmer group that comes through this. So, yeah. but I got so much pushback from my bosses about spending any time making a flyer and I was like we're gonna have to hash this out because what you're saying is only these special groups get special treatment and everybody else we take their money and then we tell them they're not like worth it somehow we don't value them in some very easy and specific way because I have a template for flyers like this is not a thing and and either i can do it or or i can take two hours and we can train the interns and they'll do it but the office still provides some of these support services it was such a minimal ask yeah yeah it's that individualism piece it's funny when you were saying that before i was thinking about how when i played candyland i was a nanny for many years when i played candyland with the kids i learned after the first couple board flips that we were going to get rid of all the pieces except for one guy. And we were all going to play that little guy to Candyland, And we made it a cooperative game. <laughs> That's against the rules. Janet. It is. And I've it gotten, is not, we are not in a cooperative culture. I have gotten so much pushback from people who said that I was robbing the kids. And I'm like, there's robbing <laughs> the kids and there's spending the next four hours having them in a screaming fight because one's a loser and one's a winner and the board is flipped. I mean, I don't think that teaches anybody anything valuable. Right. But boy, getting that little blue guy out of the swamp, they were on each other's side. Like, oh, every time something happened, they'd all go, oh, no, they'd commiserate. I was like, okay, these are skills 
These are big compassion <laughs> skills that I, mm, they are way, like they're going to get competition no matter what. And, but is it even yes. that big of a deal in sports? You have to cooperate as much as compete. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this is, this is reminding me of a Ted talk. And of course I can't remember the name of it, but it's, I think it's got pecking order in the title, but it's very interesting. And it's about breeding chickens <laughs> for you know breeding chickens for like the top chicken like oh. the most ideal perfect chicken and what they found was when they did that the whole group of chickens really suffered because they were sort of like attacking each other and so on mm. and so you know it was being equated with with workplaces and other environments where we really put our energy into the the top dogs and getting these ideal candidates and blah 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 versus kind of the bigger picture of like how does this group actually work together and if you get like 10 top dogs in a room it's really not going to work that well yeah i'm mixing my chicken and dog yeah. metaphors no, i get it if you get your 10 you top get chickens idea. in a room <laughs> <laughs> I have had chickens. That's pretty roosters. fun. <laughs> Too many roosters. Yeah. Well, and and the uh, corollary to that that's so interesting is the way that at least we as a culture end up making it so that those people, the top dogs and chickens, get away with stuff that ultimately yeah. undo the entire project. Like yeah. it's not like that is a great thing to select for. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really great. I will definitely look look that yeah, up. Yeah, I think if you Google TED Talk and Pecking Order, you'll probably find it. Yeah. Yeah. But I can also, you know, search for it. You can put it in the show notes. Yeah, I will do that. That's awesome. What do you wish you had known when you went into all of this? Mm, wow, tell, or what would you tell your younger self? You can either do a micro or a macro. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do I wish I had known? Yeah, that's hard. I mean, one of you know, something my wife tells me all the time is to be patient because I, you know, like I said, I, I, I live in this fantasy world a lot of the time and I have this vision of the future and I want to get there and I want to get there now. Um, and obviously it takes a lot longer and it's a lot slower. Progress is a lot slower. And so in some ways, like I think it's helpful to be optimistic and a little bit unrealistic, yeah. but in other ways, then it can be like more disappointing when progress isn't happening. Mm. Um, and so I think, I think this isn't necessarily what I wish I had known, but I think what feels kind of validating and affirming is that even people who are successful have really struggled and overnight successes usually take 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then they like go viral and it's like, whoa, they came out of nowhere. But no, actually they've been working on this for 10 years or their or their lifetime and so I think that that is a helpful that has been a helpful thing for me to keep in mind as an as an impatient person <laughs> <laughs> and I, I read a book uh about habits by James Clear which is a, a great atomic habits that's what it's called it's a great book atomic like atomic oh, that's great. um yeah i think it's more atomic as in like an atom like a oh. little tiny 
But I, I, maybe he's using both, you know, he's sort of like collectivizing both the explosion and the little incremental atoms. But, but he uses uh, the metaphor of bamboo, which apparently takes years to develop a root system that's underground and that you can't see at all. Mm. And then it shoots up overnight and the growth is like exponential. It's one of the fastest or maybe the fastest growing plant on earth. And so it's kind of interesting to think of that, you know, and he's sort of saying like people, people give up too soon because they're not seeing the growth because mm. it's all underground. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't come to fruition yet, but you might be like just a day or a week away, you know, so oh, don't give like up that. before it bursts through the ground and starts growing. And so I like to kind of, remind myself of that that it that it that it takes time and that even if it's not super visible that there is like progress and learning and growth that's happening that's a that's a foundation for awesome things oh i love that that's yeah that's awesome that's a good way to that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. But you never know when that, when it's going to puncture the earth. It's no. like, <laughs> is it, how far away is that? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Jessica, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really fun to, to chat with you. My favorite topic. So. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> great, to, great to talk about. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Jessica Gifford for being on the show today. Links to her website and the other things we talked about today can be found on the show notes for today's episode at our website, Working 9 to Thrive, and that's with the number 9.